Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Netflix, Coffee, and Questioning Humanity. We are back, 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 Nice little echo there. And we have a lot to talk about. I have watched so much and there are so many different news stories I want to talk about. Really quick update health-wise. Uh, good news, great news, and like a bit of a downside to the good, great news is after a few more doctor visits, I don't require emergency surgery. So that's really good. It's still pretty serious, but I find out tomorrow or today when you're listening to this, when I actually will have my surgery. But the downside is that I will be in continuous pain until they do the surgery. There's really nothing painkillers or anything can do. You just kind of have to suck it up when the pain's at a 10, but I am not at a 10 right now. So I wanted to get some of this out there. There is so much going on. But today I am trying the Rob Zombie Dead Sled collaboration. It is the Hell Billy Brew coffee and I am stoked about it. I'm also going to be giving my thoughts on that Britney documentary and a show I didn't think I'd end up watching, Midnight Mass. And then we will be discussing my roller coaster experience watching Squid Game. And you do not want to miss that. Trust me. It's quite a story. Then of course we will hit some streaming news. I have quite a bit coming out of Netflix. Let's not waste any time and get right into it. Caught you off guard with those funky, purge-like, dystopian air raid sirens, huh? Gotta keep it funky and fresh, keep you listening. Friendly reminder that this is an explicit podcast, which means I may discuss explicit content while certainly using explicit language. So little ears, those easily offended, and my mom and dad may want to bow out. Now, on with the show. So today I am drinking the Rob Zombie collaboration with Dead Sled Coffee. It's the Hellbilly Brew. I'm definitely going to keep it after I'm done with the coffee. So the coffee is 100% Arabica beans from the Bigusu subregion of Uganda and is 100% USADA organic certified coffee. It was grown at an elevation of 1600 meters and roasted to a smooth and horrifically delightful medium to medium dark roast. And I have to say it was pretty good. Now, What I've noticed with some of the, I don't know if you'd call them luxury coffee, but more of the upscale coffee that I've been drinking and that I've been making at home. My go-to way is I grind the beans myself and then I either do a French press or a percolator. The percolator is definitely my favorite, but if I want it to be really, really strong, I definitely would opt for the French press. And yeah, it was pretty good. I don't think that, how do I put this? The coffee is good, but this is just me. And I'm gonna explain why this may not be relevant to everybody. I don't regret the person because the collaboration is cool and the artwork is cool and I 100% think if you're a Rob Zombie fan you would love this. The artwork alone is worth every penny but I'm noticing this trend and maybe it's something I'm doing but I've noticed the coffee is very earthy like almost like a hint of dirt in the flavor. I consider myself a coffee lover. That doesn't mean I know every detail and have this high cultured palate for coffee. I don't. I was just saying the other day my favorite coffee is Folgers. That's my favorite one to make at home. The classic roast of Folgers. So I am not a connoisseur. I drink coffee a lot. I like coffee themed items. I like making coffee. It doesn't mean that I am some expert with like my nose in the air and every coffee that costs a lot of money is amazing to me. It's not. This wasn't bad coffee. I don't want it to come off that way. Clearly they are very serious about their coffee. They make great coffee. People love it. I am just 
gutter trash and I like gutter trash coffee. The only time my nose goes up in the air is now with Aroma Joes. That is when I get snootish and snobby. I'm like, oh, you're drinking Dunkin's water with a splash of coffee when you could be drinking Aroma Joes. But that's really it. And you know, what can I say? I like Aroma Joes. Going back to the Rob Zombie Hellbilly Brew, it is $22 for whole bean or you can get the ground version for $22 as well. Also, they have this promotion going on where you get 15% off your first order if you subscribe to the Dead Sled Coffee email list. You know how companies are always doing that. I would say how they did the beans and the official license and the artwork, I would say that's a bargain. That's a lot of money that they put into this collaboration. So if you are interested, like I said, they have a whole bunch of different options. They have like a Robert England blend as well for, you know, Freddy Krueger. They do a lot of horror coffee. That's sort of their thing. So they have really cool collaborations. The website is deadsledcoffee.com or you can check them out on Instagram, just deadsledcoffee. They've got a wicked cool Instagram page as well. I will be sipping on that through this episode, staying nice and caffeinated. So while I'm still buzzing off the beans, let's move on to the Britney Spears documentary. Of course, I watched Britney v. Spears, which if you don't know, is a Netflix documentary directed by Aaron Lee Carr. The documentary revisits the establishment of Britney Spears' conservatorship, which Britney Spears' parents, more specifically her father, framed as a necessary device to protect her from outside influences like her ex-boyfriend Adnan and her manager at the time, Sam Lufty. Both spoke on camera about how the conservatorship was bullshit. Like, duh, we all know that now. But it was very comforting to hear from two men that were so close to her. Adnan even said in his interview, Britney wrote parts of the Blackout album in front of him on a Starbucks nap. It was also mentioned in the documentary how people in conservatorships rarely, if ever, have jobs. They have an inability to handle day-to-day functions. We also learned that the whole pro-conservatorship, whoever was involved with that, ticked the box for fucking dementia when filling out the paperwork for, like, why Britney needs the conservatorship. Dementia. Britney fucking Spears. Dementia. The two don't equate. She was working within weeks of the conservatorship's establishment, going on tour to promote her album Circus in 2008, and appearing in the MTV comeback documentary that was titled For the Record. And with that documentary, I watched it many times. I remember when it came out. There are only glimpses of the truth. Her mental health was really weaponized against her at that time, even as she was made to work incredibly hard nonstop. The filmmakers received a load of leaked documents about the conservatorship in 2020, which gave us all of this new information that is highly confidential. So this documentary did give us a lot of new information. I thought it was really awesome how the filmmaker Aaron Lee Carr purposely avoided using those, you know, notorious images from 2007 that Britney said herself was traumatic to look at. The media and paparazzi were fucking next level grotesque at the time. It was actually really disgusting to watch the video footage of these paparazzi chasing her fucking ambulance with the cameras pressed against the window, like the window, the back window of the ambulance. 
and they were harassing her to the point where the police taped off Cedar sinai Hospital. Absolutely ridiculous. Another standout moment for me was when a journalist named Jenny, I forget her last name, she wrote about Britney Spears for Rolling Stone. She's also an executive producer and a huge part of the documentary and was as close as you could possibly be at the time to Britney. She told a story about how she snuck into a hotel bathroom in this top secret, very brief meeting between her and Britney years and years ago. I believe it was in 2009. She was contacted by Sam Lufty and Adnan Ghalib to deliver this petition to Britney, stating that she had a, quote, lack of confidence in Samuel D. Ingham III, the lawyer who was appointed to her case while she was hospitalized on an involuntary psychiatric hold in 2008. This is important because it shows that since 2009, Britney legally on file for a long time said she did not trust her lawyer. Shady shit. And still the court did nothing. I think they said something about how the signature uh, wasn't her signature. They said they had reason to believe it wasn't. Absolute bullshit. The most interesting thing that I got from the documentary was the exposing of institutions who benefited from the financial arrangements of the conservatorship once it was established. The documentary introduces Lou Taylor, a manager in the TriStar Sports and Entertainment Group, who the Spears family trusted because she shared the same Christian background. Lou Taylor allegedly also suggested placing Lindsay Lohan in a conservatorship, which is just illuminating, isn't it? Clearly this woman wanted to prey on young, famous, successful women who had mental health issues and a poor public image like that party girl image at the time because of it. Another TriStar employee named Robin Greenhill also appeared in Britney Spears' inner circle and she was just controlling her daily life, even though her and Lou Taylor were technically business managers. Business managers are not personal managers. That's a completely different position. They aren't meant to be there every second of the day barking orders. Because of the involvement of both of these women, their entertainment company TriStar received $500,000 from Jamie Spears. So remember, these are business managers working for an entertainment company. They received $500,000, okay? Britney Spears was on a hiatus at the time. Why would the entertainment company make $500,000 when Britney wasn't even performing? It's shady, shady shit. Why pay business managers when there is no business? Allegedly bribery, definitely fuckery, and most definitely buffoonery, in my opinion. Another really batshit thing that came out thanks to a member of the security company company hired after the conservatorship said that Britney's entire life was recorded and or surveilled, even her conversations with her fucking children and her lawyer. Her wardrobe manager also spoke out saying how Britney's budget was even strictly controlled. She couldn't even buy fucking Skechers shoes. Horrendous Skechers shoes. Britney, why would you even want to buy Skechers? But you know what? If you wanted the ugly Skechers, you should have had them. This is the world's biggest pop star, arguably of all time, and she can't even buy a pair of fucking shoes. This woman also said Britney was absolutely terrified of the marijuana smoke at a concert because that could mean that she might fail a drug test and therefore would not be able to see her children. From her assistant to former creative directors, they all shared that if anyone got too close to Britney, they would be cut off completely. They didn't want Britney to have anyone to confide in and they wanted her to have absolutely no one she could trust. This is sick, dehumanizing, sad behavior. And this is a strong woman that's come out of this.
Brittany also had random drug testing requested by her father, who was the conservator, and her dad was drinking heavily at the time and was the one in control. He was the one that was in charge of business decisions and money. So Brittany tried on one occasion to have her lawyer ask to have her father subjected to random drug screenings, just like her own. And the judge replied, quote, this is a quote, who is she to be demanding that of anybody? That's what the judge said to Sam Ingham. And the judge also said to Britney Spears's lawyer that he might not want to mention to Britney Spears that she had a right to get married. Like, what the fuck? How dare you, Mr. Spears? You had me fooled. And you too, Mrs. Spears. Death to all of them. Britney's new attorney, Matthew Rosengart, comments at the end of Britney v. Spears that the evidence that has been uncovered of alleged abuse, especially by her dad, would ultimately help release her from the arrangement. In court, he called Jamie Spears a, quote, toxic, abusive alcoholic. Her father has now been removed, and we now know Britney is free. So there is a somewhat happy ending to the story. This isn't the end for her. She has so much healing and learning and growing to do now. It's beautiful growth and it's going to be hard for sure. But if anyone can get through it and blossom into a beautiful flower, it's Britney, bitch. I hope she takes all the time she needs to heal and have a family. I know she expressed that she wants another baby and she's getting married. And I can't wait for the art that she makes when she feels in her soul she's ready. Moving on to the next title I watched, Midnight Mass. Holy ass balls. Just, just wow. Let me give you the brief description. The series is about a small, isolated island community whose existing divisions are amplified by the return of a disgraced young man and the arrival of a charismatic priest. Now, I loved this show for many different reasons. The lighting was beautiful, especially the natural light. The set, which they built this entire town on an island in British Columbia and it looked incredible. That's that big ass money. I thought Netflix was in debt. I don't know how they pull off this big budget shit time and time again, but it worked for them. This show had a lot of wonderful messages and commentary on the hypocrisy and negatives surrounding Catholicism and religion in general. It was really refreshing to hear it done so well, especially within the dialogue. But overall, when you step back and you look at the even bigger picture, because the religious messages are quite in your face, But I think there is an even larger and more important message that is basically saying be cautious with man. And by man, I mean humans. We aren't creatures to be trusted due to our uncontrollable lust for power and money, etc, etc. I don't want to spoil it really because if you haven't seen it, you need to. The acting is unreal and the dialogue, like I said, I just, it's unmatched. There's one scene specifically with a character named Erin and she's giving her her thoughts on what happens when she dies. And it was the most beautiful and anxiety-inducing spoken word from a show I've heard in a very long time. It was scary and powerful and comforting and humbling all at once. It was just wonderful. It also kind of made me wondered what space smells like. Not because it's brought up. They never once mentioned the smell of space, but they kept showing the sky. And I was like, huh, how fresh is the air way out there, boy? It must smell like a crisp fall night. That's what it must smell like. But according to astronaut Thomas Jones, he said it carries a distinct odor of ozone, a faint acrid smell, a little like gunpowder. Sulfurous, 
A gentleman named Don Petit said that the best description I can come up with is metallic, a rather pleasant, sweet metallic sensation. It reminded me of my college summers where I labored for many hours with an arc welding torch, repairing heavy equipment for a small logging outfit. It reminded me of pleasant, sweet-smelling welding fumes. That is the smell of space. So just in case you were curious, that's what space smells like. Random, but you know, why wouldn't I share? It's definitely not what I thought it would be or want it to be, but I mean, they paint a pretty good picture. I can smell what I think they're stepping in. And finally, I I am so embarrassed, but I have to explain my experience with Squid Game. It's so embarrassing. Okay, so I quickly read an article titled Squid Game May Become Netflix's Biggest Show Ever. Netflix's co-CEO said, wait, what the fuck is a co-CEO? What we're doing here, Michael handles more of the big picture stuff and I handle more of the day-to-day stuff. So together... I think I understand. All right. Each of you is doing half a job. No. Sometimes I can hardly handle that. (laughs) Now, this is knucklehead talk. I'm not going to bite it. You know, you can't give me gravy and tell me it's jelly because gravy ain't sweet, is it, Jim? Michael? Forget the question. I saw that article and posted the title to the pod's Instagram, right? Like giving, you know, an update on some news. And I was like, oh, cool. Maybe I'll watch it for research purposes. But what I thought the article said, for fucking God only knows what reason, was that Squid Game may become Netflix's biggest game show ever okay and i assumed this show was going to be the equivalent to the floor is lava mind you i have only heard about it briefly on i think it was actually like h3 or something someone said in passing like oh you wouldn't make it past round one of squid game right that's all i had heard and to be fair That sounds like a game show, right? Okay. So it's not on my Netflix page anywhere. And when I do type in Squid Game, the cover is the main character like smiling like cheese, you know, it was super cute. And then when I clicked on the show, I didn't read the description. I seriously just click, 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 clicked. I just was like, oh, let's watch it. Let's just do it. My eyes quickly saw the dystopian like square mask figures walking people down some colorful stairs. Cool, right? Okay, so that adds up. More evidence of a corny, campy game show. So I decide to throw it on while I'm coloring my hair, fully thinking I'm getting like a cornball hopscotch type Korean game show with like a bad dub. The only part of that that was correct was the bad dub. So fast forward 10 minutes into the show and after the opening monologue that explains the game of Squid Game, I'm watching this drama style series and I'm thinking, huh, maybe this is like a common thing in other countries or in Korea where they merge like an opening story to establish the fictional origin of the game show or something. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. But I was also much more focused on getting the fucking green out of my hair, okay? And I wasn't thinking that this needed my full 100% undivided attention. I thought it was the floor is lava. 30 minutes pass and I'm like, oh, uh, okay, finally the game. Episode one is probably like this weird drama series that sets up episode two in like a cool spin on a reality show. I see it in my head and it makes sense in my head or it made sense in my head, but I understand how it can make absolutely no sense to you listening. But this was honest and truly where my head was at. The only thing that confused me was the storyline being so dark. That was where I was like, weird. Maybe this is just an adult game show. 
Then, 46 minutes in, 46 minutes, I realized this was no reality show. This was no game show. This was, I can't even express how fucking shook I was when Baby Bop, looking like Boo from Monsters, Inc., started rattling bullets for contestants fucking up red light, green light. I was shook. I was also obsessed. Now, let me give you the actual real description now that I have shared my mortifying misunderstanding of Squid Game. I actually haven't read any description yet, so I'm curious how they could possibly explain this genius show. Hundreds of cash-strapped players accept a strange invitation to compete in children's games. Inside, a tempting prize awaits with deadly high stakes. Okay, basic skim milk version, but it's accurate. So without spoiling anything, this was incredible. My favorite thing I have watched this year, truthfully. The whole idea and concept is very Jigsaw-esque, very Saw-esque. But what they get right and do so beautifully is the characters. These are all highly flawed individuals and you end up caring about them and you hurt when they hurt and you understand why bad people do bad things in this microscopic kind of way. You also see how greed affects people in a pretty fucking intense way, pretty in your face. It's very gory, very, very, very gory and dark and And the dub, oh my god, the dub is so bad. It's trash, but my fucking god, is the show great. I binged it in two days, I think. It was a wild and wacky and wonderful roller coaster ride of a show. Also, Netflix is apparently going to edit out the Squid Game number because it's a real fucking number. Like, this is somebody's number. And they have been receiving, obviously, mass amounts of prank calls and text messages, so... That's probably good on Netflix. And speaking of Squid Game, let me use that to transition into some streaming news, starting with Netflix and a story revolving around Squid Game. South Korean internet provider SK Broadband is suing Netflix to pay for the increased network costs and bandwidth usage the streaming services content has drawn in South Korea. How badass is that? The company cites Squid Game and DP, two popular Korean Netflix dramas, as part of the cause. SK Broadband's demand for payment isn't unfounded. A South Korean court sided with the ISP in June, the Korea Herald writes, suggesting Netflix was responsible for the demands its content puts on SK, counter to Netflix's request that it not be charged. Since customers are the ones streaming and already paying for it, the court said the company has the obligation of paying the price for the services to SK Broadband. SK estimates the cost at 27.2 billion won, which is around 23 million for 2020 alone, according to Routers. Apparently, The Verge has contacted Netflix for comment. The company shared the following statement with TechCrunch in response to SK's demands. We will review the claim that SK Broadband has filed against us. In the meantime, we continue to seek open dialogue and explore ways of working with SK Broadband in order to ensure a seamless streaming experience for our shared customers. Netflix's success in Korea and popularizing Korean film and television in the U.S. has come to a head in the last year, and specifically in the last week thanks to the surprise hit Squid Game. Netflix co-CEO, there's that co-CEO 
again. Ted Sarandos said Monday that it was on track to be the company's most popular show yet. And within four days of its release, it was already number one in the US on Netflix's top 10 chart. And I will be touching on those top shows momentarily. Netflix is now streaming Seinfeld and has upgraded the iconic show about nothing to even crisper resolution. Netflix has also given the show a more modern looking 16 by nine aspect. Instead of offering the original 4x3 aspect ratio in which the show originally aired. When Netflix announced that it would be getting the rights to Seinfeld and upgrading the series to 4K in the process, there was some hope that the streaming service would go back to the drawing board and create a true 4K cut, one that rescanned the film in the highest aspect ratio, offering the holy grail of Seinfeld cuts, a high definition version of the show cropped as it was originally intended. Netflix pissed on those dreams and even though Netflix loves to drop big coin, they didn't want to drop any extra here. A rescanning of the entire show would cost a huge amount of money on top of the already exorbitant 500 million plus that it spent on the rights to even get Seinfeld. But the service also didn't take the chance here to at least offer the option to choose between the HD 16 by 9 cut and the lower resolution 4 by 3 aspect ratio, which would have made sense. The real issue with the wider aspect ratio is that it has a real impact on things like the basic blocking of scenes in exchange for slightly more footage of the left and right sides of the frame. The top and bottom of the frames get cut off resulting in the occasional cropped foot or top of someone's head. The 16 by 9 cut of the show also ruins some of the jokes. As one Twitter user pointed out, the pothole from the episode titled The Pothole doesn't actually appear anymore in the widescreen version thanks to the cropping. And as I mentioned before the Seinfeld story, Netflix released a top 10 rankings for its most popular original shows and movies by the number of hours that people watched them in total during the first month of their release. This is the first time Netflix has disclosed any kind of data like this. And I wanted to share it because I find it very interesting. The top 10 series by total view hours in the first 28 days. Number one is Bridgerton, season one, 625 million hours. Number two is Money Heist, part four, 619 million hours. Number three, Stranger Things 3, 582 million hours. The Witcher, season one, 541 million hours. 13 Reasons Why, season two, 496 million hours. 13 Reasons Why, season one, 476 million hours. You, season two, 457 million hours. Stranger Things 2, 427 million hours. Money Heist Part 3, 426 million hours. And finally, Ginny and Georgia season one, 381 million hours. I realize I stopped saying third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, but you get it. For movies, the top 10 by total view hours in the first 28 days. I was really surprised by this. I didn't expect really any of these, maybe one or two. I'm gonna go backwards with this one to make it a little bit more exciting. Number 10, Murder Mystery, 170 million hours. Number nine, The Old Guard, 186 million hours. Army of the Dead, 187 million hours. I could have saw that coming. Number seven, Enola Holmes, 190 million hours. Number six, Spencer Confidential with 197 million hours. Number five, Six Underground, 205 million hours. 
Number four, The Kissing Booth 2, 209 million hours. Number three, The Irishman, 215 million hours. I could understand that. Extraction, 231 million hours. That's the runner up. And at number one, Bird Box, the meme of the century, 282 million hours. I would not expect number one or number two there. And I hate that Bridgerton is the number one show. I am such a fucking hater. I know this. I will say, I will give credit where credit is due. Musically, Bridgerton did what that new Cinderella was trying to do. The music was dope in Bridgerton. I can give them that. Cinderella, oh my god, it was just, just so bad. I'm sorry. Am I wrong? I don't. I don't, I don't get what they were trying to do with that movie, but you know what? Yeah, let's move on. Okay. <laughs> I just had to share that clip. According to Deadline, Paradise Hills director Alice Waddington is set to board Netflix's adaptation of Department 8, which is based on the popular comic book series. The Maze Runner scribe T.S. Nolan will adapt the script. Mike Richardson, Keith Goldberg, and Paul Schwaik of Dark Horse Entertainment will produce it. The original story is set after a renowned scientist is mysteriously killed in a deep sea research station. And his estranged daughter is sent six miles below the surface to investigate. With the pressure building and the water rising, she must race against time to solve the murder as she uncovers the truth behind the station's purpose. That actually sounds really cool. I'm down to check that out. I have no familiarity with Department H, if that's what it's called, or Dept H. It's spelled D-E-P-T dot H, so I assume it's Department H. Netflix Geeked tweeted that members in Spain and Italy will now see Netflix games available on their Android phones. They also stated that Netflix is still in the early stages of their gaming experience. The Netflix games test is only available on Android at the moment, while tweets from its localized accounts for Spain and Italy show it still works by pushing customers to the Google Play Store. There, they can install the titles that are playable as part of their normal subscription. After they're installed, players can launch them from the main Netflix app, but it's not like watching a movie since players are shifted over to the game's own app. There are five games to choose from, Shooting Hoops, Card Blast, Teeter Up, Stranger Things 1984, and Stranger Things 3. The gaming has received its own section in the bottom navigation bar, which should make it more visible to people simply browsing in the app. When they announced the effort in July, Netflix executives said games will be included in members' Netflix subscription at no additional cost, similar to films and series. No details on when this will hit the U.S., though. Back in April, it was announced that Netflix had purchased a Kanye West documentary spanning over 21 years of the rapper and designer's career. Netflix announced that the documentary, titled Genius, will be released on its streaming platform in 2022. No exact release date yet, but according to IMDb, the documentary entered post-production on September 27th. So for me personally, I don't think we'll have to wait that long into 2022. I'd bet my money on a New Year's drive. I really would, like a big New Year's drop or sometime in the first quarter. The documentary was created by Clarence Cootie Simmons and Chike Oza, aka Cootie and Chike. Reports say Netflix paid out approximately $30 million to get their hands on the documentary, which includes never-before-seen archival footage from the last 21 years of the rapper's music and design careers, the death of his mother, Donda West, and even his unsuccessful 2020 presidential candidacy campaign. Although whether the documentary will cover his separation and divorce from Kim Kardashian is still unknown. 
I feel like this could be an entire docuseries, kind of like The Last Dance style with that much footage. I'm sure this will do ridiculously well, and I hope it drops sooner rather than later because I am dying to see it. Well, now we know how successful Enola Holmes actually was, and it only makes sense that they'd do a sequel. And now Enola Holmes 2 has officially been confirmed by Netflix. Millie Bobby Brown and Henry Cavill are back as Enola Holmes and her older brother Sherlock. Many of the original film's main cast members have been confirmed as returning for the second movie. Helena Bonham Carter is also thought to be back as Enola's mum and mentor Eudoria Holmes. While chewing gum, Susan Wacoma will return as Enola's jujitsu teacher, Edith, and Lewis Partridge's return as Tewksbury. On top of starring in the sequel, Millie Bobby Brown is also listed as a producer on the new film, alongside her sister Paige Brown, under their family's production company, PCMA Productions. We have no official trailer, release date, or plot, but I'm sure we'll get all of that around the holidays and again my gut is telling me this will be a first quarter 2022 release via yahoo.com wwe is getting into the halloween spirit with its first ever interactive movie experience on netflix titled Escape the Undertaker. The film pits Mark Calloway, who reprises his iconic Undertaker character for the first time on screen since retiring in 2020, against the New Day trio, WWE champion Big E, Kofi Kingston, and Xavier Woods, as they search a mansion looking for a magical urn, similar to the one Undertaker and the late William Moody used for decades in the WWE. Through on-screen prompts, viewers will be given options to direct the New Day crafting their own journey, and as The Undertaker ominously states in the trailer, confronting their deepest, darkest fears. Their 31-minute interactive special is the latest collaboration between Vince McMahon's wrestling company and Netflix. In 2020, the companies teamed up to release the main event, a full-length film starring Mike the Miz Mizanin. Mizanin? Mizanin. Something like that. The Miz, we'll call him. You can check out Escape the Undertaker on Netflix now. It premiered on Tuesday, October 5th. Via Polygon, Mike Flanagan, the creator of Midnight Mass, is adapting Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. I'm so excited for this. The streaming service announced the new series on Wednesday, but didn't reveal when it might be released. The fall of the House of Usher follows an unnamed narrator as he stays with two siblings and watches their once great family fade in the creepiest way possible. While the series will be based on Poe's original short story, it's likely that Flanagan and his team will make some significant additions as they draw the story out to a full eight-episode miniseries. Flanagan is no stranger to working with Netflix, having directed, written, and created series like The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, along with the movies Gerald's Game and Hush. Flanagan also released Midnight Mass for Netflix in September, as we know and love. Before he makes it to Edgar Allan Poe, Flanagan has another adaptation with the streaming service in the works as well. He'll be adapting Christopher Pike's The Midnight Club, a haunting story about terminally ill young adults, into a series that is likely to hit Netflix next year. Moving on to Hulu, we only have a little bit of news from Hulu this week. Weeks ago, Kim Kardashian teased that her larger-than-life family had returned to filming a new show and now we know it will be streaming on Hulu. The new show is going to have the entire family be a part of it, but Kim, Courtney, and Chris are going to be in it the most. 
a source exclusively told Us Weekly of the new Hulu series. There's a strong focus on Kim's journey as a lawyer, which fans got a taste of in the last season of Keeping Up with the Kardashians. They're making the new show somewhat political. The insider adds that the reality TV personalities have liked having more control during filming and that the series will air sooner than months out, noting that it's an entirely new production from their previous series. It's an entirely different concept, the source says. It's more chic. They recently started filming. They're going to try to keep filming on the down low as much as possible to keep it a surprise for fans. Uh, Personally, I don't care. Uh, I don't like the Kardashian Jenners, but I'm not shocked in any way. I'm actually surprised they held off for so long. It's been like, what, months since the show, the Keeping Up with the Kardashians ended? But yeah, I mean, good for them. I hope it's a fun journey for them. Also, have you heard, speaking of the Kardashians, have you heard that fucking viral Chloe interview? Oh my God. It's so cringe. Let me play it. I can't stand people that are like eating a bucket of like Haagen-Dazs ice cream. Like, I'm so fat. Chloe, you lost weight because you got it vacuumed out. Then you got it pumped back into your ass so you could be like your sister who's way more famous than you because you were way jealous of it. And you know what? All of your sisters did the same thing when they started gaining weight. They sucked it out of their fucking stomach and pumped it in their ass. So what the fuck are you talking about? You didn't get off your ass and do anything. You took a couple of fucking Instagram pictures, heavily filtered them, and then put them online to make little girls feel like shit. And now you're talking about fat people saying that they're not doing anything when they have to fucking go through life and deal with people like you saying shit like that. The fuck is wrong with you? What the fuck is wrong with you? Why don't you get the fuck up off your ass? Oh, that sends me. Okay, really quick. Ma'am, Miss Chloe, you are beautiful. You, you are beautiful. You were and are a beautiful woman. But let's not pretend that you aren't the poster child for plastic surgery and fucking lipo, okay? Let me just clarify. I do disagree with the commentator a little bit. I do think Chloe works out. I do. I I don't doubt it. I'm sure she eats great and works out and has that going for her. Now, my clarification is this. You do not get that body with eating healthy and working out. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. You can be slim and toned and all of that, but you don't get a brand new ass and a ribless waistline with squats and fucking donkey kicks. And Chloe, you are not the authority on anyone losing weight. No celebrity is. Your doctors are, okay? You, Chloe, can and probably have had a pint of Haagen-Dazs once or twice in the midst of feeling down about your body. And then, as the commentator said, proceeded to get the fat sucked from one place and planted into your ass cheeks. Let's just not. I'm sorry. I don't like this family. I don't. And I don't think I'm being cruel. I, I don't believe that, you know, cruelty is entirely necessary all the time. I just don't believe that. But this family is full of shit. I'm sorry. They are so full of shit. And the fact that... This this girl had the balls to say in an interview that, oh, I can't see when people say they're fat. First of all, let me, oh, uh, okay. I didn't want to go off, but I'm going off. You have no idea why people have the weight that they have. Some people have actual fucking health disorders where they can't lose weight, where they're constantly gaining weight. Some people, most people are on anxiety medications that cause them to gain weight. Okay. Been there, done that. And losing weight is incredibly hard for them. Some people have chronic fucking pain and they can't work out. They can't get off their ass. So who the fuck are you to shame people for it, Chloe fucking Kardashian? Sorry we all can't afford lipo, okay, and to get our fucking ribs taken out of our chest. Ribs aren't in the chest, I know that, but I was out of breath and that was the shortest thing to say. Anyway, 
I could go on for the rest of my fucking life about how their behavior is poison for this world. But instead, I'm going to move on to HBO News. Onto more shit I don't care about. This story anyway. A lot of these stories, most of these stories I do care about. I'm in a sassy little mood. You can tell by my sassiness when the pain is starting to creep up, right? I was at like a two when I started and it's slowly moving into a seven. And now I'm talking about Pretty Little Liars. So it's moving into a nine. Anyways, Pretty Little Liars, Original Sin has casted the moms of the new liars. The moms will be played by Leah Salonga, Sharon Leal, and Elena Good. They are the series regular moms, and Carly Pope and Zakiah Young will be reoccurring moms. If you don't know, because if I'm being truthful, I had no idea that this reboot was happening. Uh, it's based on the best-selling books by Sarah Shepard, and the reboot will feature new stories and new characters. 20 years ago, a series of tragic events almost ripped the blue-collar town of Millwood apart. Now, in the present day, a group of desperate teens girls, a brand new set of little liars, find themselves tormented by an unknown assailant and made to pay for the secret sin their parents committed two decades ago, as well as their own. In the dark coming of age, horror-tinged drama, Pretty Little Liars, original sin, we find ourselves miles away from Rosewood, but within the existing Pretty Little Liars universe, in a brand new town with a generation of little liars. So I don't know when the show originally aired Pretty Little Liars, but I remember my sophomore year of high school, one of my best friends was obsessed with this show. And I mean unhealthily so. And I just didn't get it. I remember being at her house one time and she like wouldn't talk to me. She's like, pretty little liars is on. And I'm like, bro, what? <laughs> Like, I don't give a fuck. I just didn't get it. I didn't get it. And that is not me saying, you know, I was snobbish about television. Certainly not. At that time in my life, when I was 15 years old, my obsession was watching Jersey Shore on Wednesday nights. So I was a fucking gutter rat when it came to television. But this show, this Pretty Little Liars, was just absolute fucking trash. I'm sorry. What I did see, the very few episodes I saw, was probably the worst fucking writing, the worst acting I have ever seen on television. Point blank period. It was corny and the cast was shit and I couldn't care less about a reboot, but you know. I know most of the girls I went to high school with will be shitting a dick right now. Are you shitting my dick? On to Paramount Plus news. Paramount Plus has announced that it is bringing back Teen Wolf in the form of a sequel movie. Set to hit the streaming service in 2022 with the series creator Davis signed on to write and executive produce the film. While it's unconfirmed which cast members will return to Teen Wolf because Teen Wolf did run on MTV for six seasons from 2011 to 2017 and it was focused on the adventures of the teenage werewolf named Scott McCall and the various villains he and his friends went up against during its time on the air, right? The recently announced revival will revolve all around him and his life as an adult as he yet again attempts to keep the town of Beacon Hill safe from the latest supernatural threat. So as I said, it's unconfirmed who's actually returning, but Tyler Posey acknowledged his involvement by sharing the news of the revival on his Instagram and captioned it with sup. Other cast members have addressed the trailer too, which I assume indicates that they will all return, but we don't know. A plot synopsis for the movie via Variety reads, a terrifying evil has emerged. Scott McCall, no longer a teenager yet still an alpha, gathers both new allies and reunites trusted friends to fight back against what could be the most powerful enemy they've ever faced. No specific date has been announced, but I'm sure we will be getting the 2022 date sometime soon. Moving into Apple TV+, Plus, The Verge reports Apple told the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, 
That's a big one. That its Apple TV Plus streaming platform had fewer than 20 million subscribers, which allowed it to pay lower rates to the ITSE workers than bigger streaming platforms. But this isn't surprising to me because Apple TV Plus has fewer original shows than like a Netflix or a Hulu. And Netflix said in August it had 209 million subscribers if you needed a comparison to the 20 million, because I know that sounds like a lot. 209 million to 20 million. The union is preparing for a possible strike after negotiations with production companies have stalled for Apple TV Plus, saying in the release that the explosion of streaming combined with the pandemic has elevated and aggravated working conditions, bringing 60,000 behind the scenes workers covered by these contracts to a breaking point. Apple TV Plus has several big budget shows on its roster, including The Morning Show, which stars Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon, and Ted Lasso. It's surprise hit comedy about an American coaching an English football club. The Morning Show reportedly costs Apple 15 million per episode, and many of Ted Lasso's writers and stars have reportedly negotiated more lucrative contracts for the show's third season. Apple said in July that it had a net profit of 21.7 billion on 81.43 billion in revenue in its third quarter of 2021. Apple and IATSE didn't immediately respond to requests for comment from The Verge, but an Apple spokesperson told CNBC that its pay rates are comparable to leading streaming services. And finally in Disney Plus news, as a part of 2020's Disney Investor Day, the Mouse House announced that among the 5,000 other future productions, it would be making a third sister act movie with Whoopi Goldberg, back to star and produce. Tim Fertile, who created High School Musical the Musical, the series, will direct the Sister Act 3 film, and the plot is currently being kept a secret. Tyler Perry is on to produce the film, which is aiming to show up on Disney Plus in the next couple of years. According to Deadline, Fedele nabbed the latest gig after impressing Disney executives with his work on the new film Better Nate Than Never, which will be on the streaming service next year. I loved these movies as a kid, so I am super excited to see what they do with Sister Act 3. I think it'll be big budget, all hands on deck. I think they're going to make it larger than life. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to little old me ramble on about Khloe Kardashian and the smell of space for this long. If you have been listening for more than an episode, you know I like to bring awareness to a cause at the end of each episode. And I usually pick a cause that's like relevant to something that I discussed. But today I was like, let me look up what the awareness of the month is. You know how there's always a day or a month that's recognized. And I found a site that shares observations and I was wheezing looking at it. I have to share some of these. Obviously these aren't like official official, but enough people decided that these things needed to be recognized in the month of October where they actually put them on a site and made them like well-known awareness things. Ahem, here we go. Caffeine Addiction Recovery Month. International Walk to School Month. International? Bruh, it's cold in some places. National Apple Month. National Applejack Month. National Bake and Decorate Month. National Caramel Month. I'm not gonna say national, they're all fucking national. Chili Month. Chiropractic Month. Cookbook Month. Cookie Month. Go on a Field Trip Month. I'm Just Me Because Month. Whatever that means. Kitchen and Bath Month. Pet CBD Month. Like what? Pet CBD Month. CBD for your pets. Never in my life that 
actually terrifies me. Pickled peppers month, pizza month, popcorn poppin month, pork month, pretzel month, principles month, protect your hearing month, okay, fair, reading group month, roller skating month, sarcastic awareness month, that's every month for me, baby, sausage month, seafood month, also every month for me, stamp collecting month, toilet tank repair month, like what? Window covering safety month, okay, pear and pineapple month, raptor month, rhubarb month, right brainers rule exclamation point month, self-promotion month, spinach lovers month, squirrel awareness month, which they have in parentheses different than squirrel appreciation day in January. Thanks for the clarification on that. Very important to know those are different. And finally, vegetarian month. And I don't know if you have received the memo, but vegetarians definitely didn't because it's vegetarian month all year long for them and they'll they'll tell you all about it. I just love that a collective group of people were like, you know what needs awareness? For 31 days, no less, we really need to bring awareness to toilet tank repairs. But on a more serious note, the month of October is Down Syndrome Awareness Month and I wanted to spotlight NDSS.org. Down Syndrome Awareness Month seeks to break down barriers and focus on promoting advocacy for people with Down Syndrome. NDSS celebrates October in a different way each year and they are very vocal on how you can help spread the word and on the website they share links for different fundraisers that they are holding. They also have the option for athletes or non-athletes to run or cycle in the October Run, Hike, Walk, Quest or Cycle Quest to celebrate individuals with Down Syndrome. The website also shares information about Down Syndrome as well as resources and programs for families with loved ones with Down Syndrome. I can't wait to be in your ear again. That sounded really creepy. Uh, But yeah, stay caffeinated, stay streaming, stay strong. 